0: We're in the middle of a section in Matthew's gospel that we have given the title progressive polarization. What we're seeing in this section is Judaism splitting down the middle under the pressure of Jesus' ministry and claims. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, you'll recall that in chapter 15, Jesus left Jewish territory in order to de-escalate tensions with the Jerusalem authorities. And here we see that the moment he re-enters Jewish territory, that conflict is immediately resumed. The strange coalition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees suggests that this was an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews that was comprised of both of these groups together. We pick up the story again in verse 2. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The leaders in Jerusalem can't interpret all the signs that Jesus has already done, and therefore he will give them no further signs to consider apart from his impending death and resurrection, which he refers to as the sign of Jonah. As Jonah the prophet died in the belly of the whale and on the third day rose again, as it were, so shall the Son of Man. Let them consider the significance of that if they will. After this confrontation, Jesus once again retreats north into Gentile territory. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, here we should probably take note of two things. We should notice, first of all, that the disciples were sometimes guilty of taking Jesus too literally. The goal is not to interpret the Bible as literally as possible. The goal is to interpret the text as it intends to be interpreted. If the text intends to be taken literally, then we should take it literally. But if the text, or in this case, if Jesus intends to be taken figuratively, then that is the way we should interpret the text. Sometimes crass literalism becomes a sort of badge of honor among the uber conservative. But the best way to honor the text is to take the text in the sense that the text is given. And Jesus is clearly speaking in a symbolic sense here. And he is a little bit annoyed that the disciples are so slow to see that. Secondly, we should notice that Jesus was worried about his disciples being influenced by the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Unbelief is contagious. Pride is contagious. Skepticism is contagious. Hypocrisy is contagious. Therefore, young disciples, beware your associations. You will absorb the spirit of the age. That's human nature. And Jesus is spotting its effect upon his disciples, and he warns them to take appropriate action. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let's just pause here so we can understand the movement and the geography. Remember, Jesus has come back down into Jewish territory and has had another unpleasant encounter with the powers that be and has therefore withdrawn into more Gentile territory in order to spend some time with his disciples away from the deleterious influence of the Jerusalem authorities. The text says that he has withdrawn to Caesarea Philippi, which was about 25 miles north of Galilee. So this is a a leadership retreat, And at some point on the retreat, Jesus asks his disciples a very important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a very important and obviously a very controversial passage. Notice, first of all, that Peter's understanding, however limited, is declared by Jesus to have been a gift from God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. You didn't achieve this level of insight via normal human means. Rather, God the Father has graciously revealed this to you. Faith is a gift. Peter's understanding is not yet complete. No one is going to have a fully developed understanding of Jesus until after the cross and after the resurrection, but it is steadily progressing as a result of the gracious self-disclosure of God. Now, as to Peter being the rock upon which Christ will build his church, a few comments should be made here. Number one, according to the Bible, Old Testament and New, Jesus is the ultimate cornerstone of the church. And All of the apostles are declared to be part of the authoritative foundation. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Thus, what is said of Peter here will later be applied to all of the apostles. Peter is unique in that he was first, But he is not unique in the sense that all the other apostles are secondary to him. That's not what's being said. Nor is there anything being said here about apostolic succession, infallibility, or any of the other Roman Catholic doctrines that go far beyond the words of this text. Secondly, while Peter is said to have the keys here, Jesus is said to have the keys in Revelation 1.18 and Revelation 3.7. And the whole church is involved in church discipline in Matthew 18, 18. So it seems that the emphasis is on, again, Peter being first in terms of sequence, not first in terms of hierarchy and authority. Third, as to the meaning of the keys, it seems that it has to do with who enters the kingdom of God and who is excluded. This may relate secondarily to church discipline, but its primary meaning likely relates to ushering people in by means of preaching the gospel. Luke 11.52 is helpful here, where the teachers of the law have taken away the key. That is, they have effectively barred the way to the kingdom with ignorant teaching. Thus, for Peter to have the keys here means that he is to preach the gospel of the kingdom so as to help others enter in, as indeed he has been helped to enter in. We pick up the story in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here we see that the death and resurrection of Christ are foundational events in the building up of the church that Jesus has just spoken of. But Peter, as of yet, has no category for understanding these things. We see that in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We see here, of course, that Peter's faith is still in process. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah and even as the Son of God, but he did not yet recognize Jesus as the suffering Savior. We're often very hard on Peter here, and yet the truth is that Peter was thinking right in step with most other Jews of his time. The Jews as a whole did not think the same way about sin as Christians later came to do. E.P. Sanders, for example, says, "...it is important to note that the rabbis did not have a doctrine of original sin or of the essential sinfulness of each man in the Christian sense." Quote. This is one of the fundamental dividing issues between the Jesus movement and Pharisaic Judaism. And remember, Jesus is trying to shield his disciples from the contagious and corrosive attitude of that group— He does not want them thinking that way. But here we see they are thinking that way. They underestimate sin and they overestimate power. They think change will happen. They think the kingdom will come if Jesus seizes control of the nation and expels the occupying power of Rome. They think that's the solution. But Jesus knows they have misdiagnosed the problem. They don't understand the seriousness of sin, and therefore they can't understand the necessity of the cross. That's what Peter is missing, just like pretty much every other Jew at that time. Jesus is doing something that no one fully understands yet, not even Peter. And so Peter needs to get back in line. He is not ready to be Jesus' teaching assistant. He is still thinking like everybody else. And though it is clear that God has been at work in his life, he still has an awful lot to learn. We pick up the story again at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Here we see that the cross is not just an atonement to be received, it is also an example to be followed. It commends sacrificial service and mission to all who would follow Jesus. It establishes the way of lowliness and rejection as the unexpected pathway to the kingdom of heaven. Notice also that judgment in the Bible is always according to works. In verse 27, Jesus makes that explicit— We are saved by grace, but judged by works. The assumption is that the grace we are given will surely result in works in keeping with repentance. If you make the tree good, then it will produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That assumption shows up in almost every teaching in the New Testament on the final judgment. We come to the end of chapter 16 and verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I mentioned that this is the end of chapter 16, and that's true. But of course, originally it was also the start of the story told in chapter 17. The chapter divisions are artificial and come much later. And it is surely significant that in all three of the synoptic gospels, this saying immediately precedes the story of the transfiguration. The most natural interpretation, therefore, is that a select group of the disciples will receive an advanced preview of the king in all his kingdom glory, while the rest will experience those things upon death or the second coming. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible believing, gospel preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first hand, on the ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca.